I've titled the sermon this morning, A Man Like Us, or A Man of Like Nature, is with the same nature as ours, or several different translations of this passage in the book of James, where we'll be reading in just a moment. What you see up here is a picture I took in Israel last year uh, from the top of Mount Carmel. You go up on Mount Carmel, there where God called, Elijah called down the fire from heaven, and this statue is there. It's got different languages all around it, which you see all over Israel all the different languages, and that's Elijah with a sword, taking out the sword to slay the prophets of Baal. Now, we referred to this event a little bit last week, and that's why there's a connection here, and we'll do more of that today. I just think there's a lot of connection between the topic we did last week about uh, waiting for signs from God, seeing signs from God, uh, uh, what you do all the time, what you're doing every day, what that sign means. And we talked about that last week, and we used this passage that people often use from the story of Elijah. After these events on Mount Carmel, he was disappointed because all the fire from heaven didn't fix things. And Elijah had done many big things in his lifetime as a prophet of God. He was the miracle man. And he was a very flamboyant and outgoing and electrifying preacher and prophet. And he also was prone to go from the highs to the lows. We call him bipolar. This man should have been Baker acted because he was wanting to kill himself after being so high. So he's going from high to low. We see this all the time in people. Some people are like, and then there's Judy. She's flatlined pretty much. You know, I'm all over the board. She's the flatliner. That's what I call them, flatliners. And, and you need those in the world too. Don't, make, don't, make, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But Elijah was this kind of fellow. And yet when he took it, God took him out on the mountain to get him back on track. And there's a fire and there's an earthquake and a great wind breaking the mountain in pieces. And it says, but God, it was not in those things. And then there was the sound of silence in Hebrew. There was a still small voice, we put it in English. And people use this to say that they should sit, sit around every day listening for the still small voice to tell them what to do, to tell them what God's will is. And we talked about that last week. You can, you can download that on the website and listen to that. I, was gonna, I might still do maybe next week, but I have a little more time to process it, an extension of that term. Because I, believe, I think looking back, at, I was a little negative. Who, who would ever thought I could be negative? I was a little bit negative in the sense it didn't really give any positive direction as much as I wanted of how to hear the will of God, how to discover the will of God. We need to know that and and what it means on our prayers and stuff. So I didn't go in a positive direction last week. It was more an attempt to tear down this notion that's so prevalent today in Christianity that we should sit around and listen. And I'll tell you something. I need this kind of help that people are saying that they got where they... uh, you know, God tells them what to do every day. Look at this. I got on tan stuff, and I get dressed this morning, look in the suitcase, because we stayed at the motel last night, and I forgot my right colored socks. I got blue and white socks on. It's horrible. I can barely stand to look at myself. Because Why didn't God help me with that? Why didn't the still small voice come and say, you didn't put your socks in the suitcase. Because right. I had some picked out. I mean, perfectly matching socks, and it's the only way to preach. <laughs> and and uh, I'm, being, I'm being mocking again, but Elijah was a great mocker. But the point is, well, I do things happen like that. 
Why don't we get what we want? Why does, don't things turn out the way we expect? Well, God addresses a little bit this business about prayer and how things work. And he uses this man, Elijah, who was this miracle worker, raising the dead, causing droughts and, and everything, and bringing down fire from heaven. He uses this man that God worked marvelous miracles through. In fact, Elijah became the type of Christ that the Jews were thinking of. When he says, who do men think that I am? He asked him in Matthew, and they all said, well, they think you're Elijah or one of the prophets. You had Moses and Elijah. Isn't that what happened? We'll come to this in a moment. At the transfiguration. This is, he was known for being the prophet that did God's miracles and power, with power. And here's what, here's what James says about him. This is important for us to think about. After he talked about going to the elders to be prayed for when you're sick and you can be healed, he says in verse 16 of James 5, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Or I think it says, uh, with a man of like, I think the King James says, a man of like passions. He had the same. And this word, oh, you'll love this. Some of you people will hear. The word is homeopathus in Greek, something like that. It's, you know, you have homeopathic medicine. This is the word here. It means feelings. A man of the same feelings and nature as ours. Homo meaning the same and pathos meaning uh, passion, emotions, whatever. This was who Elijah was. Well, I thought he was a great miracle worker. I thought he got what he wanted because God gave it to him and everything went though he wanted because he was a miracle worker. Elijah was a man of with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. When we were over there in Israel, uh, Judy stood at the edge of the railing there by this uh, up from the statue on the top of the mountain where this miracle of the fire happened. Literally in that spot is where it happened. And looking out toward, you can see from there the Mediterranean Sea way out in the distance. See the, most of the land of Israel before you. And she held up her hand. I, I think I showed this picture. And she held up her hand like this to show. It said that a cloud the size of a man's hand came. When Elijah prayed, a, a cloud the size of a man's hand came up on the horizon. And that cloud grew and drenched the whole land. Let's see. What's the point of this? Oh, that's such a miracle. It was a miracle. There was a drought for three and a half years. It was a miracle. That's the whole point of this verse. It wasn't a miracle. Not in the, not in the proper understanding of what a miracle is. A miracle is not that McDonald's gets your order right. That's how we use it. They even gave me, you know, not enough to, whatever I ordered, you know, hold the ketchup. That's a miracle. That's how we use the word today. Even the miracle of childbirth is not how the Bible uses the word miracle. That's how we use it. The Bible uses the word miracle. This is a direct intervention from God with supernatural power that will not happen on its own. Because it's against the other laws that God made to govern the universe. Or, or at least 
the way those laws will be operating at that particular time, it's against those. The miracle is a direct interposition of God, his will, or desire. That's not what happened here. Why it, that's not why it didn't rain and all the animals were dying in Israel and all the crops failed and the king was beside himself because everybody was dying. He moved his animals around, if I remember the story correctly, because they couldn't find anything green in Israel. Imagine it not raining here for three and a half years. We can't even do from February to April hardly here. Everything shrivels up if we don't get any rain in the spring. It's a dry season, in case you don't live here. The spring is the uh, winter and spring are the dry season here. And it's especially bad once it begins to get warm in March, April, and May, and there's no rain. And every day in early June, you're looking for rain because everything is drying up. And then it rains. But it didn't rain in Israel for these three and a half years. They thought it was going to rain. And they're dependent upon the two crops. The early rain, the latter rain to grow the crops in Israel have to come at the right time, the right amounts, or everything shrivels. I remember being in Illinois. We were there for those six years, and one of the years, it was just terrible drought in, in the spring and into the early summer in that area of Illinois. It didn't rain. You know, that corn was everywhere growing up, and it grew a little. And then the tassels start to come out, and if there's no moisture, the pollen from the tassels can't fall onto the, uh, the silks of the corn and pollinate it. And nothing happened. No rain. No moisture. And so our, one of our, the main members of the church there, our friend who passed away recently, he, to, he had 1,000 or so, 1,500 acres or so he was farming. He said, I took my combine out there in the fall, in, in August, in early September, took my combine out. He said, I made one pass in, that, in my big field. He said, I may have heard one ear of corn hit the, hit the hopper. And he said, I just turned around, went right back to the barn, parked it. No use wasting the diesel fuel when there was no corn. That was one summer, and they were devastated. Three and a half years. We have ways around that today, but they didn't. How'd that happen? Well, it happened because a man with our nature just like us, prayed that it wouldn't happen and prayed earnestly and fervently and God said, okay, yes. And it didn't rain. And it brought Ahab to his knees. See, it wasn't just so Elijah could make sure he had the right socks for Sunday morning. It was not some prayer like that that he'd hit the stock market or whatever. It was a prayer that the country could turn, his, that his people could turn away from their sin. And to move them, he wanted, he wanted God to do this. And, and uh, maybe it worked. But this was not a miracle. This was just the power of prayer. Of an, what he's saying is, an ordinary person prayed this prayer. In, my, in his view, Elijah's an ordinary person. And it, God did what they wanted to do. You know, here's the kind of man Elijah was. Toward the end of his life, he had done so many astounding things and he had been so important to the people of Israel at this time in their history. And it says he's walking along with this young man. Well, God told him in the cave there, he said, after the still small voice said, okay, get up and do this stuff. Don't just sit here and wait for a voice to tell you stuff. Get up and go anoint Elisha to be prophet in your stead. One of the things he told him. We saw that last week. So he goes back and gets Elisha. 
and Elisha, the younger man. And Elisha was a quiet, unassuming person, just the opposite of Elijah. And then it happened as they continued on, him, him and Elisha talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses. You can hear the music playing in the background. <laughs> chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire. And separated the two of them. They both ran away from each other because of this chariot of fire. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Chariot of fire comes through. It creates a tornado or whirlwind and sucks Elijah right up on into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen. And so he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into into two pieces. God thought so much of this man that he took him up to heaven without even dying. And yet James says he's a man of a lot of passions with us. And, and he granted his prayer just because he prayed it. You see him in the New Testament. I think I referred to this already in Matthew 17. So Jesus takes, after six days, Jesus, uh, in verse 1 of Matthew 17, took Peter, James, and John his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. That word is just not a common word even in Greek, really. I don't think the idea of transfigured. We call this the transfiguration. It doesn't. The, he, it means his form was changed. He was changed from one form to another form. Here you see him walking with them, and he is just a man. Looks like any other man. You know, sweaty, Whatever. And he's walking along with them, and he goes up on the mountain. And then he was transformed. And what happened here, maybe in one way to explain it, is what was inside Jesus was not only his human spirit, if he had one, but there was certainly his spirit as God himself. And that was hidden by his flesh, by the body. It was hidden by his body. couldn't be seen. But here on this occasion... What, who Jesus really was as God's son came through his flesh. And it says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, little altars, one or perhaps a place for them to rest in the shade. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. That's when God's Jesus says no. God says no. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. And the other two disappeared. They went back where they were in the, from the, to the land of the dead. But... It's not an accident that Elijah and Moses are the two that are picked here. I don't think. This is the law and the prophets. Elijah is such an important figure. They represents the prophets, all the prophets, and the whole prophetic visions that, were, that received, that Israel received. And Moses represents the Torah, the law that God gave on Mount Sinai by the hand of angels. Moses represents that. And Peter sees these three, and he's astounded by this and wants to make a tabernacle, a place of rest for these, for these three. And God says, no, just Jesus, just my son, all the rest isn't necessary. And that's why we, when you come here to this passage in, back to, in James, that he was, we are to confess our trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
He says the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much or is powerful in its working. Don't be confused by the modern religious world around you that basically tells you that you have to pray for miracles all the time or you have to be a certain person before you can receive the answer to prayer. That's that's what this verse is saying is not true. This verse is telling the ordinary Christians, James is, uh, that they can pray. They can confess their faults directly to God. They can be healed. That the prayer of an ordinary person makes a big difference. So every Sunday we hand out our prayer request list here. You may not look at that. I don't know. I hope that you do. It may have the same names on it for week, week after week, month after month, because those same people need prayers. By the way, if somebody needs to be taken off that list, let me know. I don't know. If I take your relative off and you get mad at me, you know, I'm sensitive to that. So I don't want you to do that. I don't want to do that. But on the other hand, some people do need prayer every day. Now, what God says is here, the prayer of a right, the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man avails much or work. It works is what he's saying. Accomplishes the purpose that it's intended for. The problem that we see, and I don't, it's not really the point of this sermon today, but the problem that we often see, all, it's a little part of the sermon, but not the big part, is that we don't get what we want. Our, our prayer may be for X, but we end up with Y, you see. And that troubles people. They think somehow God isn't hearing their prayers because we don't get what we want. I, I think you have, to hang, you have to stay right here with this verse. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You you need to believe that. You can't always see that, but you need to believe that that is true from God's point of view. If you're serving the Lord and doing what you can to serve him as a faithful child of his, and you're his servant and uh, and you go to God with your requests, let your requests be made known to God, he says. In nothing be anxious, Philippians 2. But in everything, let your request be made known to God. Then you can have confidence that God is hearing your prayer. I do not believe the country song that, about unanswered prayers. I don't believe that song because there's no such thing as unanswered prayers. No such thing. God answers every prayer. It just some, But, you know, like I told my kids, no is an answer. You didn't answer my prayer because you didn't give me what I wanted. Well, no is an answer because sometimes that's the best answer that you can receive. It doesn't feel like it, but no is sometimes the best answer God can give you. He's not out to hurt you, not out to destroy you. He can do that a lot of ways. But a Christian can go to God in faith knowing that God is hearing his prayers and is answering his prayers in the way that's best for that person. That's the effectiveness. So when you start undergoing through this, the effective fervent prayer, I mean fervent here is the idea it's burning, it continues to go, isn't a passing thought that somebody has. But it's, it's something that means a lot to this person and they're fervent about it. And the person serving them, that, that, person, that person's prayer is going to be heard. Now when you go back to Philippians chapter 2, I don't have that up here, but where he says... My brain is locking up here because I was 
doing two things at once in there. Uh, the the um, in nothing be anxious, he says. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. So I'm going to break that down. We've talked about this before, but break it down just for a moment in this context. In nothing be anxious. I, I think some versions even say, don't worry about anything. I think the King James says, be careful for nothing. That's not helpful directly to us because we use the word careful to mean about caution and safety, care. But the word really means be full of cares. So careful in the ancient, in the old English, in the King James 1611 version meant don't be full of cares or anxiety or worry, whatever modern word we put on it. That's what it means, don't be careful for anything. So in nothing be anxious, many modern versions say, or, or overburdened with worry. But, and here's the key word, in everything, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. In everything. That's a big word. That's a big concept for us. So I summarize that for years by saying, if it's big enough to worry about, it's big enough to pray about. Whatever it is to you that's big enough for you to be anxious or concerned about, it's plenty big enough for you to pray about. There's no such thing as, well, I won't bother God about that. That's too minor. He's telling you no there. He's telling you don't think that way. Open up your heart to me. Talk to me. Tell me what it is that's on that you have care and anxiety about. Let me have that. And not that he'll do everything for you and you just... Well, did you hear about the woman the other day? Seriously, she's driving her car over 100 miles an hour, and she says, well, Jesus, take the wheel, and she lets her hands off the wheel and drives into a wall. Because, you know, the old, the common religious gobbledygook today is that you know, let Jesus take control, let God have control of everything, turn the... God is my co-pilot. My co-pilot's scared to death half the time. That's all I can say. But, but the point is, that's not the idea that we just let go and God does everything. That, that isn't how that works. That, that's not what that means. So we, turn, we do, as it were, turn over our cares to God. But it, mean, it doesn't mean we just stop, let, let, put our, take our hands up and, and uh, say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. How foolish. What a, what a travesty of interpreting Scripture and teaching people these kinds of things. But he says in nothing be anxious, but in everything, let your requests be made known to God. And the, and, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So we'll have a protection of our heart there. When we, are, when we have faith like this and we believe what he says here, that God is hearing our prayers and that it doesn't mean that, that we don't have to be some big muckety-muck in the church or some other person. Here's a man like Elijah who was just like us and he prayed and didn't rain for three years. What's the point of that? The point is you can have power in your life and God will listen to you. Please don't pray that it gets dry for three years. I'm just asking you. Don't do that. Well, maybe I shouldn't say that. I don't know. Maybe it needs to be dry for three years. God has the power to sort all that out. He has the power to sort it out, to make it work out for your benefit and for other people's benefit. So, some of the times, we're getting off the track here, but some of the times we pray, uh, we're praying for this or that, and we don't 
realize that what we're praying for actually would be bad for somebody else. If God, you think God can grant everybody's prayers just for what they want as they say it? What do you think happens on Super Bowl Sunday? What's he going to do about Super Bowl Sunday? Because these people are praying for that. These people are praying for that. Some people are praying it never happens. The game just gets canceled. You know, so what's he going to do? Well, if you, if you must and you root for certain teams, I know you need to pray. But just be assured that God is going to work it out better for, for everyone in that regard. Are you willing to accept that? In everything, give that. Give that. Now, now, I don't have uh, this verse up here either, but we referred to it last week. Kind of the opposite verse. So that's the beautiful thing about this subject. It's an opposite verse that you've got to take it all into consideration. And sometimes um, these interpreters don't. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, I know a man who was basically taken up into the third heavens, into paradise. Which to the Jews, there was first heaven was the earth and the sky here that you see. The second heaven was what we would call outer space. And the third heaven was where God is. Really, some of the more detailed ones had seven heavens. You've heard of seventh heaven. Well, the seventh heaven, they would break that space down more detailed. So if the seventh heaven was directly in the presence of God. But Paul uses the third heaven. Meaning out of the world that we can see into the spiritual realm where God is. He was taken there. And he says, I saw things which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Meaning, these things were not permitted for him to tell us to write down what he saw. They were too much beyond our comprehension or understanding. And he said, more or less paraphrasing, for such a one I will give thanks. He's trying to distance himself from that. But he said what happened. We know who it was. People, oh, you think this was Paul? He says, uh, no, it was Paul because he says, because of the greatness of the revelations given to me. I was sent a, a messenger from Satan, basically an answer to the, to, 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 from God. I was sent a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted over much. In other words, so that I would not be lifted up with pride, that I of all people have been taken up into the presence of God and seen heavenly visions. When I got back down here, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. Or Satan, Satan gave me a thorn in the flesh to help me out. You believe that? You think Satan gave him a thorn in the flesh to help Paul out so Paul wouldn't be proud? No, that's how I know this came from God. That's one reason I know that. Because the, Satan was permitted by God to harm Paul in some way, whether it was psychological, whether it was physical, we simply do not know. I lean toward the psychological, and I can explain it later some other time, but I lean toward that, can't prove it, because no one knows. But this was extremely humiliating and troublesome to Paul. But it was sent from Satan at God's permission or direction. Why? Well, Satan meant to destroy Paul with it, but God meant meant to humble Paul with it. You see, that's the way most of your troubles are. You just don't realize it. Most of your troubles come from both God and Satan. 
And depending on how you react to them, they either destroy you or build you up. And we've used this illustration before. Suppose I gave, suppose you win the lottery. Or like in the Florida lottery many years ago when the first, the first, I was here when they had the first lottery in Florida. Big controversy. First lottery in Florida. A guy from Tampa won the lottery. St. Peter, Tampa. St. Pete. And he was a member of the Church of Christ. First guy. And he said, of course, he said, I found the ticket outside my shop. And I, you know, checked it. I think they withdrew from him, cast him out. But, uh, well, first you want to get a donation, then you throw him out. But but in any event... You gotta, you gotta get. If you're a preacher, you gotta, you know, you gotta get these things in the right order. Can't just go throwing people out. They just won the lottery. Was that a, was that, wasn't that lottery? Was that a, a gift from God or from Satan? I don't know. I'd have to look at the more details of what this man did. I don't know the answer to that. You give me a million bucks, it's a gift from God. Because I know I would use it right. It never would bother me. I'm willing to try that experiment anyway. That's, all, that's the best I can tell you. I'm willing to try. But is it really? Most people, they find, no. The studies have shown over and over again, this is no gift from God. It ruins people's lives. It ruins their life and all their friends' lives oftentimes. And they're worse off. And they're broke. The worst part is they're broke. It's one thing of all your friends leave you and you're still rich. You can buy new friends. But when all your friends leave you and you lose the money... Now you're worse off. And this is, the tr- this is the trouble. So you don't know. Sometimes what you're asking for is the worst thing for you. God knows this, though. And so, in everything, though, he says, pray to God, uh, to God with thanksgiving. Everything you should be thankful for. And I think that everything is a big word. It includes all the stuff we hate. All the stuff that we try to avoid. Pain. Sorrow, all those things. That's part of the everything. The word to give thanks for. It's hard, not easy. And then he says, when, you do, when that happens, you'll have peace. Peace. Peace, Jesus says, my peace, I'll connect it to verses, is a peace that the world doesn't have, but I'll give my peace to you. The world can't give you this peace. You don't have it. And that is the peace of knowing that no matter what happens to me, I'm fine. God is with me. I'm fine. I try to give, I've mentioned this recently, so I'll throw it in here. I've mentioned this recently, but I try to give Judy this piece about life and uncertainty of us growing older, not knowing what the future holds and all that. She's always afraid every week that you're going to fire me and we'll be destitute. She lives with that fear. But, uh, and she's right about that. But uh, I've told her, and it, I'm, just, I'm not saying this to brag, I'm only saying this because I think it's true and meaningful to us at least, that the one thing I can't, I can't say what's going to happen to us as we get older. One of us is going to die and the other one's going to be heartbroken, most likely. Well, she'll be heartbroken until after the party. But anyway, that's what's going to happen. But I can tell you this, I can't tell what's, but I can tell you this. Whatever it is, I'll be there with you. We're going to be side by side all the way through this thing. If it's at all humanly possible, that's the promise I can make to you, that I will be with you 
Is that not what Jesus says? Lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Go out and do what I need you to do. And so, with that, and with this understanding that it doesn't take a miracle worker for God to be able to listen to your prayers, you have great power in the world. Now, when you, and we'll close with this. When you go to the book of Revelation, among all the things people argue about, one of my, the favorite part of the book to me is early in the book. And you see these seven seals, and, and I think it's the sixth one. The saints are being persecuted. Here are souls under the altar that have been killed or beheaded for the testimony of Christ. These are the picture of these people who once were alive in the Roman Empire. Because they were Christians, they had been beheaded and killed. Now we look, we get the picture in a spiritual way of their souls after death. And they're crying out to God, How long? How long before you avenge us? Said before, I'll say it again now. Any nation, any government that persecutes the people of God will not stand. Good things will not forever happen to those people. Anything in the Bible that lets you think that that's not going to go unpunished? Nothing in the Bible tells me that China can kill Christians and nothing. Nobody, nothing in the Bible tells them the Taliban can execute all these people and all the Muslims in Nigeria can kill all these Christians. I know that all of those aren't New Testament Christians, but but it makes a difference. But there is some that it makes a difference who they're killing and what they're doing. That will not go unpunished. I know this in the Book of Revelation, so I don't fear China. They got theirs coming. You say that, Gary. I don't know if you say amen to this, but we got ours coming too. Okay. When we put forth what we put forth as a nation and sanction that and persecute people who oppose it, we got ours coming too. So brace yourself for that. But God will not tolerate over a period of time those who persecute his saints. Blessed in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. He will do something about this. And so the picture, God tells those people under the altar crying out for justice and vengeance because they've been killed for being Christians. Just wait. So they're praying to God even when they're uh, in a situation. Just wait. Be patient for a little while. And he comforts them. And the book unfolds itself and what you see there is the greatest powers in the world at that time are brought to their knees by the power of God. Who is it that brought about the destruction that takes place of these great powers in the book of Revelation? Who is it? It's those anonymous, unknown Christians who by their prayers and by their faithfulness to God, they brought the Roman Empire, whoever else you think the book is about, they brought them down. That's power. That's what the point of the book is. It's the book, point of the book of Revelation is not to predict the future or tell you this or that or you know how to count 666 on stuff. Who was my good friend Doug Hoffman told me the other day after listening to the sermon, he said he, his, his social security number ends in 666. And he gets all this flack all the time over that. They think he's, but anyway. I said, makes sense to me. Anyway. That <laughs> makes sense. A- anyway, see, God is work. It is a sign. But uh, ordinary people doing what they're supposed to do before the Lord is who God's concerned about.
And so just remember this. Now, I had some points. We're not going to do those, but he was... He was a man who was courageous, yet he was fearful. That's why he's like me, me and you. He climbed the mountain, yet fell in the valley of despair. He faltered, yet never gave up. And he prayed for God's help, and God heard him. We're not going to uh, deal with all those. But I appreciate you listening this morning. Don't, don't, don't uh, underestimate the power that you have. And don't think it takes some special miracle-working power for you to do God's will, for you to influence the outcome of major events. You can do that. Just keep doing it. And trust that God is listening and is going to take care of you. Thanks for listening today. We're going to close our service now by singing a song of encouragement, number 163, Give Me Thy Heart. And the point of doing this, which we do every week at the end of our lessons, is to give you an opportunity while we sing to... Uh, if you would need to, to make a decision to repent of wrong that you might have committed as a Christian or this morning decide this is the day that I want to be a New Testament Christian. I want to serve the Lord. So we can baptize you into Christ. Everything is ready. We have clothes to change into. There's water right here. It's not a huge ceremony. You can, be, you can do what they did in the book of Acts. When they heard the gospel, they said, I, I need to repent. And you can confess the Lord. You can be baptized. Everything is ready for you to do that. If you're ready, you can come down to the front when we sing, and we'll help you with that today. Or today you may be a person who who has been caught up in discouragement, despair, maybe got involved in things that you regret. Or maybe you're just struggling with a difficulty that you'd like us to pray with you about. You won't find judgment or condemnation here. You'll find encouragement and help. So I encourage you, if you need prayer, come to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.